Right now we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to do the first five verses of this chapter today. And before I read 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, I want to set up what I'm going to talk about a little bit today because this is a rather serious message. And I do have some rather direct things to say, which is not usually my style, but it needs to happen. It's my role as a pastor. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, in the New King James Version, usually we do the ESV, but I prefer the way the New King James puts this. 2 Timothy 3, 1 says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Perilous times. Other translations say times of difficulty, but I like that. Perilous times. I believe that we're living in the last days. I also believe that we're living in perilous times. Maybe you agree with me. Dangerous, difficult times. I hope we'll soon be able to say it in the past tense, but we, we have lived through a worldwide pandemic. Last year, there was incredible social unrest. We are politically divided in our country. There are epidemics of things like depression and drug overdose and suicide. The American church, which has been playing games with frivolous things for a long time, is, is, seems very weak in a lot of ways, although there are always bright spots. And there's what you might call an ecclesiastical panic or a church-wide panic today of what are we supposed to do? Especially, and I'm not at all intending to shame anybody, but I, I think especially among the older generations who grew up in a very different United States of America and understood the church and did ministry a certain way and are watching that being snatched. It feels like it's being snatched. It's happening so fast. And the question becomes, what do we do? And there are other countries that are facing perilous times too. We had a persecuted church update not long ago. We've got another one coming up soon. So how is the church to respond when we are going through perilous times? Well, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the authors of this letter, give us the answer. In these verses, they are going to solicit prayer from the Thessalonians. And what they ask them to pray for is very instructive for us. Because they were themselves living in perilous times. Everywhere Paul went, he was getting dragged out into the streets and beaten and bribed and oppressed and sent away. And then he'd leave and the little church that was left behind would be attacked by these false teachers that wanted to try and draw them away from the Lord. The lesson in a quick summary here, is that we are called to contend for the faith, especially in perilous times, to fight for the faith. Because there are opponents of the gospel, and always will be until Jesus comes back, that we must protect the mission against. The good news is that heaven comes to help us if we will pray. But when we get to the end, as I'm going to say when we get to the end, we must do so in Christ and for Christ. If we claim to be contending for the faith, but we are doing so with any motivation other than the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, we will accomplish nothing and we can even harm the church despite the short-term victories that we might win. So this may be a tough message, but I believe God needs us to hear these things. And I will tell you as well, I believe that God is right now presently sharpening, honing, refining, and forging a new generation of believers in our country. 
a new generation. This is not just an age thing. I mean, like, there's a, we need a new kind of Christian. Really, it's an old kind of Christian, isn't it? For these times. And the Lord is bringing them out. And you're going to see them rise to the, to the surface. And as the battle gets hotter, the champions are going to rise to the top. And God is going to lead his people like he always does. But we've got to be willing to shake off the dust and get back to what we know we're supposed to be doing. Nothing I'm going to say today is new, but it needs to be said again. So let's read these verses. We'll start with verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. The end of chapter 2, verses 13 to the end, was a, was a prayer that the, the authors of the letter had for the church. They, they were encouraging them and, and blessing them, and then there was a prayer in the last few verses. And now they're saying, will you pray for us? And he uses this term, finally, and you might chuckle because there's a whole other chapter after the word finally, but really it's, it's not a, the best translation. It just means furthermore or more than that. So he's saying, we pray this for you. And you know what? More than that, we'd like you to pray for us too. Paul does this all the time. He does it in 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Romans, Hebrews. If Paul wrote Hebrews, if not, it doesn't matter. It's the same point. That the, even the apostles were asking for prayer from those that they ministered to. And they pray for two things here. And we'll look at them in turn. First, they pray that the word of the Lord, which of course is the gospel, will run forward and be accepted. I like the way they phrase that. That it may speed ahead and be honored. A speedy transmission of the gospel. This is a very similar language to what we see in Psalm 147 verse 15, where it says, the Lord sends his command to the earth and his word runs swiftly. So Paul is probably making an allusion to that verse there. That Let's pray that the word of the Lord, and in this case, he's specifically referring to the gospel, will run ahead swiftly. This is what they're praying for. Success in the gospel mission. And the apostles' mission is our mission. At least it should be. In Matthew 28, in fact, in all the gospels, Jesus gave what we call the Great Commission. Jesus says, I'm going up to heaven, and what you need to do is go and take the gospel around the world to evangelize the world. The word evangelize comes from the Greek word meaning gospel, evangel, which means good news. So we are called to gospelize the whole world, to good newsify everybody that you meet. That's our job. To tell people that Jesus Christ has died for their sins, he's risen from the dead, and he's coming back someday. And if you put your faith in him, you will be saved. That is the mission of the church. And then, of course, there's the other things that Jesus said as well. To teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. To baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of that. That's our mission. I've said it many times, and we strive as Calvary Chapel to live up to this, the church exists to bring the gospel to the world. That is our primary, secondary, and tertiary mission. Other things happen along the way that are just fine, 
But I believe that everything that we do as a church ought to be in service to the mission of the gospel. And if it's not in service to the mission of the gospel, it might be a good thing, even a noble thing. But it is not a church thing. The gospel is our mission. This is why we're still on the earth, to tell the people that don't know about the good news. And then for those people, as they become more and more like Jesus through the sanctification process, they take the gospel to somebody else, and that is the process that God has given us to transform the world. There's so many lesser things that can take away the attention of the church, aren't there? So many things that we think of as religious that really have nothing to do with the good news of Jesus. And there are certain things that are cultural, and I suppose those are all right. But you should be able to take your ministry model, drop it in the middle of the African plains, and still have it work. If your mission is dependent upon certain kinds of technology, or if it's dependent upon a certain cultural reception to the gospel, you might want to take a second look at it. You ought to be able to go around the world and do what you're doing somewhere else. And it will look different, but the core will remain the same. The preaching of the word, the commitment to prayer, an openness to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a commitment to holiness and righteousness in the lives of the church. That is the whole of our mission. True revival is a return to that. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, every revival is a return. He says, a revival is not doing something new. It is going back to what God already did and seeing it lived out afresh. And he tells us, in order for the word of God to speedily move, and I'll tell you the way things are going, I really feel like we need the word of God to go speedily, don't you? It's like, all right, Lord, I know you're doing stuff, but could you hurry it up, please? Believe me, the Lord is absolutely in sympathy with that idea and that prayer, isn't he? Well, how are we going to accomplish that? He tells us right there, pray for us. Prayer is spiritual warfare against the enemy. Say, so, well, if it's God's word, then what can stop it? Well, nothing can stop it, but it can be hindered because God uses men to accomplish his will. Well, why does he? That, ask him when you get to heaven. That's the way he made the world. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul had said that we wanted to return to you, but Satan hindered us. Do you remember that? There is an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who actively tries to stop the mission of the gospel. And he is more than content to redirect the church into things that are not gospel in order to distract them from the gospel itself. And I would say that the more closely what you are doing lines up with the Great Commission, the more spiritual warfare you can expect. Satan doesn't want us doing anything, but if he has to make a choice between us gathering together to pray and us coming together for a nice time of hanging out in Christian fellowship. He said, fine, do the fellowship thing. I don't like that, but I'd rather you do that than pray. And the church becomes all about fellowship. Or the church becomes all about self-improvement rather than holiness and righteousness and spreading that around the world. The enemy is more than willing for us to accept good instead of best, isn't he? Ephesians chapter 6, we know this. This is the the armor of God passage, right? The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. We love that. This is how it ends. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. I love that. Pray with prayer, he says. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We love the armor of God. It's like, okay, what do I do with all this? What's the action that I'm supposed to take? Get down on your knees and pray against the enemy. Can I tell you right now as your pastor, I need y'all to be praying for me and my family, especially Wednesdays between 5 and 6 p.m. and Saturday nights because that's when the enemy comes in. And the enemy does not always have to be like you see on TV, some big monstrous thing that's like bringing brimstone up from the ground. He's more than content just to poke the baby until he cries and then you know, poke Tyler until he gets frustrated and now the whole family is grumbling at one another and let's get in the car and go to church. You know? <laughs> I need your prayers. I need your prayers for boldness. You don't think I look up at that camera every now and then and think people are going to see this all around the world maybe because we're going to post it online and what, what are they going to say? Now listen, I'm not really worried about what they say, but the enemy will come in and, and bring that into my mind. I need your prayers. The ministers of the gospel need our prayers because that's how we win. When the church prays, the gospel goes out. When the church doesn't pray, we have to struggle in our own strength. And I know what my own strength is like. I'm not, I'm not really interested in trying to do that. This is the first thing. They pray that the word of the Lord, the gospel, will speedily be honored. He says, just as it was among you. First Thessalonians talks a lot about how the Thessalonian church accepted the gospel message. And Paul's like, you guys are a template of what I want to see. And that's what we should be praying for in our community too. Amen? I love it when good Christians come here and find a way to be fed and loved and learn how to follow Jesus maybe for the first time. But y'all, I want to see this place filled up with people who were dead and we got the chance to lead them into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we're doing all these events. Not so we can have lots of cool stuff, but we want to be in a place where people will hear the gospel message. And this leads into their second request, which we see in verse 2. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. This is their second request. Deliverance from wicked and evil men. They're praying for protection. First they asked for success in their mission. Now they're asking for protection in their mission. Not all have faith. This is not referring to those in the church who maybe don't have faith to pray or don't have faith. This is talking about people who have not believed. The idea is that as the gospel message goes out, not everyone will receive it. Jesus told us that in the parable of the sower, didn't he? You know, scatter the seed and the birds will take some and some will be sown among thorns, others among stones. Not everyone will believe. He says, wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Now listen. Not everybody who is not a Christian is what you might call an enemy of the faith. There are many that you might call admirers of the faith. And they say, I don't believe it, but I'm going to take my kids to church because it would probably be good for them to get a little religion in their lives, you know. I, I had a boss, my first job working in a kitchen at a fine dining restaurant. The cook was an enormous Austrian man named Reinhardt. And that man, English was not his first language, but he sure picked it up, especially the swear words. And man, oh man, that guy did not know God even a little bit. But when I told him that I was a Christian and I went to church and I was always sharing the gospel with people, and he said, oh yes, church is very, very important. I'm sitting here like, what? 
and he says, oh yeah, I send my daughter to Christian school because it's very important, I'll never forget this, very important for people to have religion, especially women. Like, okay? And, he, and he, was, he wasn't being slanderous. That was just how he thought. Like, it's, it's a woman's thing. She needs to make sure she has the religion in the house. And, you know, so he was not an enemy of the gospel, but he certainly did not have faith. So that's the disclaimer. Let me move on to what Paul says here. Those who do not have faith do not have the protection of the Holy Spirit regenerating their heart. And they can become tools of Satan to oppose the gospel. Luke chapter 11, verse 23 says, Everyone who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And there are enemies of the gospel. There are people that hate the good news. They don't want anything to do with it. They don't want it in their communities. They don't want it in their government. They don't want it in their schools. They don't want it in their house. I remember kids that came to my youth group. And they were saved in that youth group, found Jesus in radical, amazing ways. And they go home and their dad will tell them, that's fine, but don't you bring that stuff into this house. I knew kids that got grounded from going to church because their parents thought that they were just spending way too much time with those religious people. And it gets worse, of course. And the names and the faces of the opponents of the church change. They change from year to year. You can even think back a few years ago, some people that we were very worried about and, and where are they now? That's kind of the Psalm 37 thing, right? Where he says, fret not yourself because of evildoers because you'll look for them later and they won't be there even though they were spreading themselves like a green laurel tree. I think of ISIS as a good example, right? We were very concerned and I think rightly so and, and there were people from the U.S. And, and England going over to commit themselves to an Islamic caliphate and we were concerned but now what? They've just kind of fizzled. That's what happens. The opponents of the gospel do not last and the faces are always changing. In Paul's days, it was the Judaizers. He was proclaiming a Messiah who died on a cross, and they could not accept that. And he was preaching against the traditions. Not the law, but against the traditions. And so they opposed him for that. They were the first persecutors of the church. In the previous century, communism, and to this day also, remains one of the biggest oppositions to the gospel. They don't want that message. They try to stamp it out. They were put in gulags, concentration camps, and, and murdered. And I already mentioned Islam in many ways that in these Islamic countries, that's where the worst persecution is because they do not want the gospel spread. It is an offense to them, as Paul would say. And this next part, I will tell you this is something that I prayed about an awful lot and as Paul would say in places, agonized over. So I want to be very careful about what I say next, but I will say my job as a pastor, among other things, is to warn you. I'm a shepherd. Paul said... Uh, and Jesus said, they both had the same, same kind of idea, but they said that in the last days, there, there will come people that will come into the church, ravenous wolves who will not spare the flock. They're going to come in, and they don't care about the people. They're just there to cause trouble. And whether or not they have a commitment to destroying the gospel, the enemy says, I don't really care what your motivation is, as long as it causes trouble for the church. I'll give you all the support you need. So I hope that you will take this seriously, and as a warning from your pastor. In our day, in the United States of America in 2021, the primary antagonist to the church that I see, the opponents that scare me the most, are these rabid secularist activists who are trying to silence and shame and shut down the gospel message. And it's very hard to 
to categorize this because it's such a broad movement. So I will be speaking in generalities to an extent here, but you could call this social justice. You could call this critical theory. You can call it intersectionality. Common name is woke, right? Being woke. Cultural Marxism is a name that's been put out there. It amounts to the same thing. This is, if you're not familiar with it, although I'm sure you are to some degree, this is a very different worldview from what you are accustomed to if you've grown up in, in the United States. This is viewing people largely, it's a sociological thing, through the lens of groups. That the individual is not nearly as important as the group. And whatever group you belong to defines you and even determines how you think. And you're not even capable of understanding what you believe and how you act because it is your group that determines that for you. It's very concerned with externalities, very concerned with how things appear, and it it evaluates everything that way. And it comes into businesses, schools, countries, and comes in trying to shake up the established order because it sees reality not as a bunch of individuals doing their best, but as groups in conflict with one another. And that they, they, the only real explanation that they give for why things are done is bias, power, oppression. You've heard these things. And the team that is on top is always evil. And the team that is on the bottom, as they see it, is always in the right. And this is snuck into the church. We've seen this through the, the movements that have swept through the nation. And this is not gospel, you guys. It has come into the church because last year when we had all the protests going on and everything with George Floyd, everybody was very concerned. Everybody was emotional and, and wanted to know what do we do about this. And here comes this group, and they're saying, we have the answer to this, and we know what we can do to solve this. And a bunch of well-intentioned Christians went after this stuff and continue to do so under the name, names like bias training, you've heard that, or anti-racism. And then you hear that, and you go, well, what's wrong with, with anti-racism? Now listen, God is anti-racist. I should be, and you should be too. But just because somebody uses a name that sounds innocuous does not mean that what they're teaching is acceptable. Politicians do this all the time, right? You're not going to call it what it is. You're going to call it something that nobody could really deny. I'll go ahead and pick on one issue. Pro-choice and pro-life. Well, who wants to be anti-choice and who wants to be anti-life, right? The names don't mean nearly as much as the ideas that are behind them. So you say, well, I want to be anti-racist, so you bring this in. And it's got some things that make people go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it that way. I never did think about thinking it through a black person's perspective or through a Hispanic person's or a woman's or a gay perspective. So let's look at this. And it's brought into the church. And people are now using this to evaluate their ministries and their doctrine. And we say, well, listen, they might not get everything right, but as long as it helps us bridge the divide between black and white or between men and women or whatever, isn't that a good thing? No. Because that ideology has a whole hatful of anti-Christian dogma at the base of it. And this is what concerns me the most. I'm not really concerned with a lot of this surfacey stuff that gets us the most rabid. This is what concerns me the most. You bring this stuff in. You bow down to this 
whatever you want to call it, the woke ideology, intersectionality, critical theory is the, the technical term in a lot of ways. You bow down to this, and they come in and they say, listen, the relations between black and white are, are there's a disparity, and we've got to fix that. And some people will go, okay, all right, I'm down with that. And they say, and you know what else? Between men and women, and also between this group and that group. Next step. Also between gay and straight. Also between transgender and non-transgender. Also between Christian and non-Christian. And this ideology holds that the Bible is oppressive, that its teachings about morality are not just wrong, but are evil and need to be stamped out. That the church as an institution is oppressive and needs to either be changed, transformed, or destroyed. And that the gospel itself is a tool of, as it said often, white supremacy. So, I'm less concerned with all this stuff up here. I'm concerned with that. Well, can't we just take this piece and ignore all the rest of it? And there are a lot of good men that are doing that. But I am concerned, and I'll tell you why. If I bring all you in and I say, listen, here's this new way that we're going to think about our ministry. So here's some books for you to read. Now, ignore all this. It doesn't work that way. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. We must resist this, you guys. And I'm trying to be as deliberate with my words as I can because there's so many other motivations that would make me want to oppose this stuff. But you know what? The, the patriotism is less important than the gospel. The, the, the education and the history is less important than the gospel. Because it is the ultimate way to regard men according to the flesh, which the Bible says we must not do. We must not do, the Bible says. It does not teach forgiveness. It teaches anger. It teaches injustice. It teaches that if you are part of a group that has been downtrodden, you are excused in all manner of sins because they're not really your fault. It tells you what you really think and what you really believe, even though you know in your heart what the Holy Spirit has testified. It's bad doctrine for that reason, that the blood of Jesus is not enough because it didn't break up the social systems. And the church is still teaching that men should be pastors and that wives should submit to their husbands. Therefore, that's got to be broken up. And they're still teaching against uh, gay and lesbian ideology. And they're still teaching that men should be men and women should be women. And that's got to be ripped up to pieces. We've got to get reinterpret, deconstruct, and completely reevaluate the scriptures. This is all stated. But we come in and we say, you know, I'd like to learn how to be more sensitive to our black brothers and sisters, or to our Mexican brothers and sisters. Oh, you know what? I make sure we're not being oppressive. Listen, that, that, that sounds fine, but don't go to the group that hates Jesus to learn that stuff. In Genesis 31, Laban came up to Jacob. We just talked about this. Laban said, you've stolen my gods. Do you remember the story? Rachel stole her father's gods. Jacob didn't know this. And Laban said, I want to search your whole camp and see where they are. And Jacob said, well, you know what? I'm innocent. You go ahead and look. And the next thing you see, Laban is in his wife's tent while she is going through her menstrual cycle, picking around and uncovering stuff to see where his gods are. How shameful is that? We have allowed that same thing to happen in the church, where we're given an accusation that there is no right to be leveled against us. And we say, here's everything we do. Come and rummage through it and tell us where we're wrong. Are you kidding me? Ezra chapter 4. I don't have time to read this passage, but when Zerubbabel and Jeshua first come back to the promised land after the exile, and they begin to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans come to them. These were non-ethnic Jews who had been brought in by Assyria and began worshiping the golden calves of Jeroboam. 
Because they said, well, this is the God of the land. We've got to worship them. And they said, let us help you build the temple. And Ezra and Zerubbabel and the rest of them said, no, you will not help us. We're not going to allow you to participate in this because you are worshiping a false God that sounds like our God, but it's not. In the same way, Peter would tell Simon the magician, he'd say, you have, you have no share in these things. You're, you're here for the wrong motives. You're here for money. And this is what we've done, y'all. We are letting those that have a semblance of righteousness. Oh, but it's not, it's not a political group. It's a, it's a Christian ministry. It doesn't matter if it's a Christian anything. If they're bringing in another gospel, which is what this is, we're not interested in that. And I feel strongly about this. And I'm speaking strongly, but not nearly as strongly as I'd like to. But this is what I will say. The church in America, in large part, has let the fox into the hen house. I truly believe that. And right now, it's, it's fairly innocuous. But you, you tell your people, you tell your church that this is where we're going and this is what we're going to learn and they can help us. It's not scripture, but you know, go read it and learn everything they say. The next generation in those churches is going to be pushing for gay marriage. They're going to be pushing for transgenderism. They're going to be pushing for the ordination of women. They're going to be pushing for the dismantling of the scriptures. Because that is what those groups teach. And you say, but listen, I'm very concerned about the way things are. I'm concerned with race relations. I'm concerned with police brutality or prison overcrowding. Okay, but you know what? Do it God's way. Do it God's way, not, not the world's way. This is one reason among many why we're doing the ministries we do, by the way. This is why we're going into the schools and doing outreach in the schools to the teachers and the students. Because I want us to be able to say, I'm concerned about the schools, here's how we're helping. This is why we're going to the pregnancy center and supporting them. Because I want us to be able to say, I'm concerned with abortion, and I'm also concerned with the women that are stuck in these situations, so we can actually go out and help them. We're beginning prison ministry, because if you're concerned with incarceration and all the rest, and by the way, Alabama's prison system has been sued by the federal government for Eighth Amendment violations, cruel and unusual punishment. If you're concerned about all that, let's go as a church and bring the gospel there. Well, these people can help. I don't want that kind of help. I needed to call that out. I needed to warn you. Let me tell you, I've seen a number of my good Christian friends who should have known better ravaged by this stuff. I have not seen a single person that got into this thing and became a better Christian for it. Instead, they get angry at the church because they're not doing enough. And the next thing they know, they're out the door. But Tyler, don't, don't you think we should oppose racism? Don't you think we should oppose oppression? Listen, can I tell you something else? These groups are using words that you think you understand. They're not using them the same way you and I use them. It's, it's really unfair because they're, they're trading off of the value and the moral weight that we have with some of these words like prejudice and racism and attaching new definitions to them so that you come in to be taught and instructed and to learn uh, with all the best intentions, and instead you're, you are being taught something new that you didn't even believe before. Christianity is a battle. It's not just self-improvement. It's a battle. We carry the mission of the forgiveness of sins, and the devil hates that, so he'll throw up roadblocks that, that pastors will say things like, all these Christians that just want to talk about the gospel and forgiveness of sins, they're ignoring the bigger issues. 
There is no bigger issue than the forgiveness of sins. The Lord would rather somebody living in abject poverty who is headed for heaven someday than somebody who has had everything equitably redistributed for them and yet is headed for hell. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Don't we know this by now? And I, I'm, I, I'm not prepared to give a full apologetic against these things. I'm just warning you. And you know what? Tomorrow it's going to be something else. And then a few years later it's going to be something else. Nothing lasts forever, except for the Word of God. Well, we got to get out there and do something. We just read it. How do we fight? We fight it on our knees. We fight in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 10 says we are living in the flesh, but we do not make war according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Keeping our focus on Jesus Christ and His mission. We sang it on Good Friday, the old rugged cross. The shame and reproach I will gladly bear, we sang. And if I've got to be reproached for being too obsessed with the good news of Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb, I'm prepared to accept those consequences. Although, I, you know, I ought to say, the reason I bring that up is because Paul says that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. This is a very rabid movement that, if it gains power and ascendancy, will be coming at the churches. And I'm praying that the Lord will deliver us from that. Because I'll tell you what, we're not stopping. If they were to take away our, well, we don't even have 501c3 status because you don't need it in Alabama. But take that away, I don't care. I'll pay taxes. They say, oh, you can't be online. You can't be on YouTube, Facebook anymore. Okay, I don't need that either. I'm just going to get out in the streets and start preaching to people. You can't preach those things in the church. You can't preach them on the radio. We're padlocking your building. Your, your lease has been terminated. Well, we'll go to the park and we'll do it there. And let them arrest us and send us to prison. It says that that will just tell me that we have been accounted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if it's this group or any other group, which is what Paul talks about next. Verse 3, the Lord is faithful. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command there's a little play on words here that you can kind of pick up in the English. It's even clearer in the Greek. The word faith and faithful very often are the same word in Greek. Because when we say faith, we mean one thing, and faithful means something else. They're much more closely tied together in Greek. So everybody always tells you that Greek is just so much more colorful than, than English. Well, in this case, English wins. It's a little more colorful than, than Greek. But what he says here is, not all have pistis, but God is pistos. It's the same word. It can mean faith or faithful. So he's, it's, it's a nice play on words. Not all have faith, but God is faithful. The Christian life is a battle. It's a fight. It's a race. And you are not promised an easy road. If somebody promised that to you when you got saved, I apologize here to correct that. You are promised suffering and reproach for the name of Jesus. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So every time you come in here and say, Lord, I want to be more like Jesus, you will suffer persecution. So there's a need for bravery and courage these days and always. But the good news, and look what he says, is that God is with us and that God will establish and guard us as we struggle. I love this verse, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Jesus said it, Matthew 28, 20, right? He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He sends us out, and the last thing he says is, and I'm going to be with you the whole time. We've been sent out to do God's work, 
And we can trust God to sustain us in that work. And he's also persuaded that the Thessalonians will be faithful. We have confidence. It's the, it's the Greek word patho. It means to persuade. And he uses it a lot. He uses it, for example, in Philippians 1.6, a very similar verse that says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So not only will God sustain us against attack outside, he will uphold us in our spirits too. Jeremiah was great against standing up against the outside attacks, but he would come back and weep and say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. But the Lord sustained him. And he's going to sustain us. It's a fight. The faith is a fight. If you're here because you're on some journey to be the best you, hey, listen, I'm all for that. That's not all that it is. God gives us everything we need to keep going. He gives us the strength to be brave, to be successful in the mission. It's all by his grace. Well, I'm not strong enough. Don't worry about that. God is strong enough. God's going to sustain you. And that does not mean that you won't suffer or struggle. Why else would God promise to sustain us and uphold us and guard us if there was going to be no assault, right? But what it does tell us is you do not need to be so worried about these things that you're stressing about what to do next or what to say or what if they do this? Which is one reason I don't like to call out the flavor of the month here very often. Because we turn into these hand-wringing, oh no, what's going to happen next? What are we going to say? What are we going to do? Or we turn into these really you know, belligerent, boastful, proud people. It's like, oh, I hope, they, I hope they do come around here and try something. <laughs> Jesus said in Mark 13, 11, he says, don't even think about what you're going to say ahead of time, for the Lord will give you what you need in that moment. Your concern is to walk with Jesus as closely as you can so that when those moments come, you're already prepared. Nothing wrong with learning what's going on and being aware, but so many times it goes so far beyond that, doesn't it? So we're facing perilous times. We have slippery opponents. We have people that hate the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're starting to get a big hearing in the United States. Not for that reason, but it's in there. But we must not be afraid. We've got to get about the work in faith. This is what the Lord does. Let's say this. The enemy's building up a tower that's going to be against the Lord. And meanwhile, the church comes in and we're pulling out bricks from the bottom because we're leading more and more people to Jesus. And then someone goes on the news and says, surprising developments in Alabama. It seems that a revival has broken out in the Trustville area. And it's like, this is going to ruin everything. It's like, well, God's like, that's what I do, man. The Spirit will lead us. The Spirit will empower us. So this is important. Faith and confidence that God is real and he's going to look after us. So parents, for your kids, you're worried. I'm worried. I've got kids too, you know. Trust that God is going to look after them and that God is going to raise them up to the level he needs them to be for the times to which he has called them to live. Verse 5. So he says, first pray for us that the mission may succeed, that we be protected against those that are opposing us. But God will sustain us. I'm not worried about you guys. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's a great little benediction, isn't it? And that rounds up this section. And then next week is the last ethical command. And then we get to the end of the letter. That word there is an interesting one. Verse 5. May the Lord direct. This is the Greek word katuthuno. It means to make straight or to guide, or to remove obstacles and hindrances. 
He needs to clear out obstacles, and I, I can't remember which commentator it was, but I liked the way they put it. He says, to focus your attention, loyalty, and love. That's what that word means, to direct. To focus your attention, loyalty, and love. When David was bringing in all of the materials for the temple so that all Solomon had to do was put it together, he said in 1 Chronicles 29, 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. That Hebrew word in the Old Testament was translated in the Septuagint with the Greek word katathuno. David says, look at how these people have desired to serve the Lord. They've brought in all the materials they need. They're ready to worship Jesus. He says, God, keep us there all the time. That's what it means to direct your heart. God wants to direct your heart. He wants to focus your attention. He wants to sharpen your loyalty. He wants to guide your love. Your heart is not your own. It's funny because folks say, well, the church just wants to tell you how to think. And then good, well-intentioned Christians say, no, that's not what we want. And I always kind of go, ooh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> that's exactly what, not only how to think, but how to feel and how to believe, how to act. Because we believe that we have been bought with a price and that we are not our own anymore. Amen. That we are slaves of Jesus Christ. And he gives us the motivations that he hopes God will direct us to. And they're really one, but there's two things that he gives us here. Love and steadfastness. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. First, there is love. You know the love of God. It's the same love that compelled God to send his son to die on the cross so that he could provide eternal life to all who believe. That's the attitude that should characterize us. If your attitude towards the world is hatred, you are not being godly. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If it's nothing but anger, you know, there's righteous indignation. Jesus turned the tables over in the temple, but he also wept over Jerusalem. So if you don't have both sides of that coin, check yourself. Or spite. Sometimes that's why people want to serve Jesus, because they can't stand those people, and they don't like seeing them win, so they just want to see the gospel come back, and they kind of got this, <laughs> look at you losers. That's not godly either. And if that's your motivation, you will fail. You might gain some short-term victories, but it won't last because it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's not gold, silver, and precious stones. It's got to be love. And I'll tell you, this church sets a great example to me of love for the lost. When we're praying on Sunday nights, it always drifts towards praying for people that don't know Jesus. I love that. It's non-selfish. It's the love of God at work in the church. So I commend you for that. And second, there is steadfastness. Of Christ. What steadfastness was that? The steadfastness that enabled him to endure the cross, despising the shame. It was mockery. It was shameful. It was pain. It was all those things. And he endured it like a lamb to the slaughter, the Bible says, without opening his mouth in protest. And he's our example. <laughs> I don't think we have always lived up to that example when we start going through suffering as a church, do we? We get all indignant. How dare you? And listen, sometimes we've got to make a stand, but listen, there's no, impatience is not godly. You know, you know, insisting upon your own right and your own way, that's not godly. The Bible says that we are to defer, that we are to die to ourselves like Jesus did. Nor should we be cowardly either, by the way. The opposite of being steadfastness is not just being impatient, it's also being willing to back down. We can't be cowardly. The Bible says the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, 
If you're going to be cowardly, you'll never get the job done. And some people think that not being cowardly means being a loudmouth and a braggart. It's not the same thing. These are the two things that characterize our Christian mission, love and steadfastness. Now, I just took a, took a nice swing a few minutes ago at the left side of the aisle, but I got something for the rest of you, too. I fear that we have gotten away in the church in other aspects from these two things as we've been struck by the waves of our culture. And this is the specific issue that I want to call out. You know, all these things, I I could have picked any number of opponents of the gospel to talk about. I could pick any number of things that are causing us to abandon the love for the lost and the love of God. This is the one I'm picking. Our culture today is obsessed with the political. It is seeped into everything. It's in our art. It's in our media. It's in our sports. It's in our education. And now it's in our churches too. And it's been in our churches. But as the temperature and the political scene flared up out in the world, happened in the church too. This is not good. And I, I, I know, and I understand, you've heard me talk about this a million times. I don't know why I'm hedging, but I'm going to do it anyway. Listen, I understand that there is a need for good laws and good leaders, but when you start filtering your Christian life through the lens of the political, when you put the cart before the horse, you're going to get in serious trouble. The pastor becomes a mouthpiece for your views, and if he ever deviates from that, then it's out the door with you. How am I supposed to pastor a church when the people spend 40 hours a week watching Fox News or CNN or listening to stuff online, and then they come to listen to me for an hour and a half? They're going to listen to me? Really? We get tempted to chase down whatever the, the cycle of the day is. What are we doing about this thing that's in the news? What are we doing about this thing that's in the news? Are we talking about this thing? What about that? And we're letting the world set the agenda for the church. And that attitude is poison to the gospel. Your theology becomes subject to your team's decisions. And you begin searching the Bible not to find out what it means, but to support the positions that you have already determined to take. Well, the gospel affects politics. Yes, it does, of course, but first comes gospel. The church should make people of every political stripe a little uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, we're all on the same team. You're like, well, hold on now. I'm down with this, but I'm not down with all that. We've got to rescue this. We've got to stand up for that. Oh, yeah, that's true. But, you know, I'm I'm going to direct my energies to this over here. And there are people on the right side of the aisle who are skilled manipulators of Christians. They know how to keep us engaged for things that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I believe in laboring for the culture. But if your whole idea of coming to church is, how are we going to preserve our culture? That's not what Jesus died for, y'all. That's not what Jesus died for. And I'm more patriotic than any of you. But if the gospel is just a tool to build up the country in which you live, is that what Jesus died for? That's what the Jews wanted Jesus to do, wasn't it? You be king, Jesus. And Jesus said, not like this, I won't. He said, no, I've got to die first. And they said, fine, if you don't want to be our king, we'll stone you to death. If you don't want to be our king, 
will leave you. Don't want to be a king, will nail you to the cross. And y'all, right now, I've said this a million times, I'm saying it again, there is a wing of the political scene that is all excited about the Bible because they see the culture fracturing and they say, well, what holds our culture together? Bible, yes, Bible, church, Jesus. All those stories, we need those things. And we go, yay. But you know what happens? The minute that the Bible and the Word of God starts to run against culture, to run against the way that we want to view ourselves, it's going to get tossed right out the window. Because it's happened in every single country around the world. And I realize that a lot of you disagree with me, maybe. But you know what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He said, I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our mission. The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Gospel only. When the church allows itself to become an arm of something that is not Jesus, it ossifies. And the Lord has to send new wine into new wineskins that make all the old wineskins uncomfortable. So why is the revival not coming? Don't they know that we need it? The Lord's like, you need to understand that you need it first. And I believe that this trend, the, the thing that I was talking about before, the whole wokeness, the whole political obsession, both those things, th there's going to be a, a generational vomit. You watch this. I, I'm predicting this right now. I'm not prophesying, I'm predicting. Difference, okay? My generation and those below have just about had it. I'm telling you. You want to know the millennial perspective? This is the millennial perspective. We've just about had it with all of it. We've had a bellyful. I think you're going to see in the world, you're going to see a return to the same kind of frivolous, non-threatening, let's just have fun attitude in a couple years. And the church has to get a return to just the simple gospel truth. But if we don't engage with the politics, they'll win. That's not, we don't believe that. Do you want to change the world? Save souls. You want to help people? Save souls. You want to fix the system? Save souls. You want to rescue the culture? Save souls. That's what we're here to do. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's it. I will gladly die on that hill. And so should each one of us. Doesn't mean we don't have opinions. Doesn't mean we don't even take action but we understand what comes first, that we are sojourners. We're pilgrims. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We are looking for a better kingdom and a better city that is yet to come. So we don't operate out of that bitterness and anger that so characterizes the political scene right now. They're wrecking our country. We've got to stop them. What did Jesus say about that? What? No. Jesus said, you know what? I'm not really worried about what the Samaritans or the Romans are doing to your culture. They need my gospel. You're going to Zacchaeus' house, don't you know that he's ripped us all off? Yeah, I, I do. And I, I love him. Salvation has come to this house. The disciple says, Jesus, you're bringing in Matthew, Levi, the collaborator with Rome? You're going to bring him in? You can't do that, Jesus. He's ripped me off so many times. I know, but he wants to come and follow me, so I'm going to accept him just the way he is. Lord, Simon's a, you know Simon's a zealot? You know Simon is a political revolutionary who kills people? Yeah, he wants to see change, and he's willing to find it in the right places. So I'm going to bring him along. Jesus drove people crazy. 
Jesus, you don't understand where the lines are drawn. He goes, no, I understand perfectly, and I just don't care. I'm more concerned with the heart of a man. Love, steadfastness, the patient example of Christ. The world is desperate for that, and y'all, I, I, just, I don't want to go off here, but like, the world is waiting for that. They're waiting for people that are going to give them the good news and nothing but the good news. That are going to come in and say, Jesus loves you so much. You're wrong about all this, the, the thing that you're no good and that the universe is, is meaningless and that you're drifting in space. God loves you desperately. It's not about all this political stuff. It's about the gospel and your heart. That's what the last revival was, wasn't it? All those dirty hippies. They found Christ. And the whole church said, well, they got to cut their hair first. And the Lord said, I don't think so. Those people are desperate for me. They're desperate for love. They're desperate for peace. They're desperate for joy. What are they desperate for today? They're desperate for justice. Lord's all into that. They're desperate for love. They're desperate for mercy. And that's our thing too. There's a wide open door. You're going to see a revival of this stuff. And I want to be right there when it happens. I think that you will see a new wave of Christians that are recommitted to the good news. Just like Paul said, living in these perilous times, and there will be a lot of folks in the church hollering at them that you're doing it wrong. But meanwhile, there's going to be lots of people get saved. There's going to be a harvest of souls that's going to come in. We've got to remain pliable in the Lord's hands. We recommit ourselves to the gospel. We pray for its success. We trust in God's help with love and steadfastness. If you only get angry when you see folks on TV that you disagree with, get on your knees and ask the Lord to give you a heart of compassion. They don't want prayer in schools. They hate the Bible. They're trying to get rid of the name of Jesus. That's a frustrating thing. But have you wept over Jerusalem? Continuing the passage I read at the beginning, 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many? All. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. But you don't understand. we got to take a stand. Yes, but God's way. God's way. He's shown us that way. I think God is about to pour out his rain on a thirsty church. I think that the last year and the times we're living in are sifting the faithful. I think you're seeing that. I think the churches, which had become incredibly full and almost suspiciously full, right, been, have been sifted. God's setting apart a remnant for himself. May we stand apart from the world and shine the light of Jesus bright, trusting that what God has given us is exactly what we need in these perilous times. And if you take away from this some sort of weird political conclusion, you were not listening to me. I'm calling you to commit to the gospel, to prayer, to the word, to personal holiness and personal evangelism in your life. And to join with us as a church as we do these things. And to let the reproach of the world roll right off your back. Because this is our mission. We're not of this world. And until Jesus comes back, we must occupy until he comes.